Again, welcome to Salt Church. We're really glad that you're here and with us this morning. We are teaching through the book of 1 Timothy. That's the text that we're going to be in today. We're about halfway through this series, and our text from chapter 3 is going to lay out the expectations of the qualifications of elders and deacons, the ones who are tasked with leading the church. Now, before, like, catch your attention, before most of you just checks out because you're not currently an elder or a deacon in the church, I, I want to help us see from this passage and other passages like this one in Scripture that they are far more applicable to the average churchgoer than you might think. And let me ask you, do you want to be more than the average churchgoer? Yeah, like three of you said yes. So the rest of you are like, C plus, I'll take it. That's good enough. But we want to be members of the local church, the bride of Christ that he loves and values. We want to live that out as well as we can. And passages like this, I believe, are important in shaping us in that way. And so we're going to look at this text today. But before we even jump into the text, can we just admit that church leadership has often been like bad, like not done well, whether that's just bad skill at leading or bad character that corrupts leadership, like church leadership has struggled over time. And like nobody knows that better than the people sitting in the seats under that leadership, right? When you see poor leadership and lacking character, like you see that and you feel that, don't you? Right? And it might leave you in a place where you're thinking, this should be done better, right? And there's a healthy version of that one in humility that says, I think I can help. I can help this be better. I can be part of the solution. Or there can be an unhealthy version that leaves you just sitting there with your arms crossed and your critical spirit that is constantly pointing out all the things being done wrong. Or it can leave you in that unhealthy place of pride that says, make me the leader and I'll fix it. Like, I know what's wrong. I could do it better. Just let me do it and I'll do it. That's an unhealthy response to poor leadership. But I think we can admit, historically, there's been some bad leadership in the church. And a text like this one gives us, even as a church here at Salt Church, a chance to like open the hood and say, are we leading the way Christ has instructed us to lead his church? And for you as individuals to be able to say, are we being part of the body the way that Christ wants us to be part of the body of the church? Because look, even though there's been a lot of bad leadership, when I look out at this room gathered this morning with these people, I actually look at this with optimism and see the potential answer to this problem of bad leadership. And listen, there is nothing in this country or in this world that churches need more than godly, healthy leaders. And that's true of Salt Church as well. We don't need bigger buildings and better college ministry and more evangelism training. Our greatest need is godly, healthy leaders. I want that to be true for our church right here, and I want that to be true of you and for you as you think, not about just this semester, but the next decade and two decades of your life. Our big idea this morning, I'm going to give it to you right away. As we wrestle with this question of what does God expect, what does God want, here's the big idea. Take, if you're taking notes, write this down, and it's this, faithful living marks faith-filled leaders. 
Faithful living marks faith-filled leaders. Each one of these words is very carefully chosen, and we're going to see how we get here from 1 Timothy chapter 3 today. Go ahead and open your Bibles. You can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy is right before 2 Timothy. Chapter 3 is right after chapter 2. So hopefully that got you where we're, where we're going. Right, we're going to walk through this list of qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And you're going to find out really quick, it is a long list and it is a high calling. There's a lot of really challenging expectations that God puts forth in this text. And before we read it, I want us to realize there's some risks in how we read a text like this one. There are some risks here. One of those risks is that you will read all these expectations and immediately say, I can't do that. Like, that's not me. I can't be the person that's being described here. And here's what I would say to that. I agree with you. It's, it's true about me too. Like, I can't do this on my own. Like, you can't live like this on your own. But the beauty of the gospel message is that we're not left to be on our own, that Jesus can change us and forgive us and transform us into being the type of people that he wants us to be. So we must have hope in that. The second risk is that we could actually see a text like this one and be filled with pride, right? We could just print out this list of qualifications with blank check boxes next to it and just get to work, like meeting this one and then meeting that one. And once we complete the whole list, now we're qualified to be leaders. Church, this isn't some moral checklist that once we complete them all, then we are the people that God wants us to be. Like, don't trick yourself into thinking that you can just accomplish this on your own. In fact, many of the things that we're going to read, you could go through and check them off one after one after the other, and you could be the most moral person that still goes to hell when you die. Like Paul's point is not, hey, be really good people. And if you're a really good person, then you can lead in the church. Now he is saying what we mean by faith filled is that our faith is in the work of Jesus, not in our ability to perform, in our opportunity to be good enough. Think about it like this. In our house, our kids have chores now, we won't talk about whether they do them very well or when they're supposed to, but our kids have chores in our house. It's just part of being a part of our family, right? We want to keep the house clean. We want it to look okay when people come over. Like, there are things to do to be a part of our family. Now, if a neighbor kid comes over, cleans the bathroom, and then asks how we spell our name so he can change his last name to be part of our family, we would think that's ridiculous, right? Like, performing a task that our kids do doesn't automatically make you part of the family. See, church, we have been adopted into the family of God based on the work of Jesus. We can't perform enough tasks to make ourselves a part of the family, but when we understand our new position in this family, we look around and say, then what do I do? Like, how do I live as a part of this family? How do I do the things that you want me to do? We don't live for the approval of God. We live out of that approval of God. And so this list of qualifications, it's not just some moral checklist. Complete them all and you get to be a leader. That's not what Paul is going for. But what is he going for? Let's find out. First Timothy 3. We're going to start in verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. 
An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? Verse 6, he must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and in and the devil's trap. That is a really big list. That is a really high calling. But here's what we see in this text. First of all, you might notice that Paul uses the, the pronoun he all throughout the text. In this text, and last week in chapter 2, elsewhere in the New Testament, we see this belief and this teaching that the role of elder is reserved for qualified men. Not just for any man, but for qualified men that are set aside by the church to lead the church. This is a continuation of the correction that Paul was making back in the last chapter. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go listen to that message. Paul did an incredible job of helping us understand that correction, to understand God's design for leadership in the church. You'll also notice in this text that the majority of these qualifications are related to character, not skill. Right? He's not telling us, hey, when you look for elders, don't go find the best businessmen and the people that can speak the best from the stage or are really gifted in gifts of leadership. Look at their character. Look at their following of Jesus, who is faithful in following him. And the other thing that you'll see in this text is that none of these expectations or qualifications are not also expected of every believer. Like, this isn't some new list that God says, hey, to just be an average Christian, you need to do these things, but to be a leader, you need to do all these new things. Now, every person who would call themselves a follower of Jesus, God looks at this list and says, I'm calling you to live like this. I'm calling you to a life of holiness. We're just going to choose leaders who are faithful to that, who practice this. The church in Ephesus wouldn't have read a list like this and said, whew, I'm glad I'm not a leader. Like, it must stink to be a leader of the church because look at all this stuff you have to live up to, right? You can't be greedy. You have to be hospitable. Thankful I don't have to be. I can do whatever I want with my money. I can be a bully. I cannot manage my own kids. Like, the church of Ephesus, when they read this letter, would have seen God placing a high calling on their life, high expectation of their character. And Paul's simply saying, the elders should be leading the way in that, should be faithful to it, right? It wouldn't make sense to have the captain of the tennis team be really terrible at tennis, right? Like that wouldn't make sense. Paul's simply saying, hey, to lead in the church, you need to exemplify the character of Jesus and the expectations of what Christians should be. Let's look at some of these phrases. The first one above reproach. It sounds like Paul is saying, to be a leader, you must be sinless. Thank goodness he's not saying that. 
right? We would all be disqualified immediately. That's not what he's saying. This word above, above reproach, this phrase, it means that, that this person does not have the regular pattern of sinning. Like that's not what marks his life. Right? Maybe you know somebody, and maybe this is true of you, where you would look at your life and say, yeah, the pattern of my life is regularly sinning in all kinds of ways all the time. I just don't care that much. I just keep giving in to the whims of my flesh. Paul's saying that cannot be the mark of the leader. The mark of the leader is faithful living, following the expectations of God. And listen, there is not a person in this room or in this church that can be above reproach on their own. Apart from the work of God in any of us, this would not describe any of us, right? Our flesh is just too strong. We want things we shouldn't want. We like things we shouldn't like. Our willpower to resist is too weak. We are dependent upon the work of Jesus to forgive us and the work of the Holy Spirit to refine us if this would ever be true of any of us. The next one, the husband of one wife. This one sounds a little easier, doesn't it? Like husbands in the room, do you only have one wife? Like check, you're qualified. It's actually much deeper than that. This phrase really would read that you're a one woman man. So if you're married, here's what this means. Your eyes and your affections are not turned towards another woman who's not your wife whether she's with you in person or on a computer screen. And if you are single, again, this doesn't mean that you don't have to worry about this one because you're single, you're not married, you're off the hook, you can do whatever you want. The call of the single man and the single woman, no lustful thoughts, no sexual actions outside of marriage. That is a high expectation that God has of his people and what God expects of his leaders. And again, there is no person in this room that could do that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. But God is putting a high calling on his people and a high expectation of his leaders. You will not pursue sexual impurity. Some more of these, self-controlled, sensible, respectable. They're getting at this idea that you are temperate, you are prudent, you are like well-disciplined. Like you have ordered your life to point yourself and to point others towards godliness and faithfulness, right? People around you, they feel safe and steadied knowing that you will encourage them in their, in their walks with Jesus and not draw them away. Hospitable, verse, verse two says hospitable. The original Greek of this word, it doesn't mean bakes great brownies. Like that's not what the original translation meant. See, often we can kind of mess this one up and think hospitable means we host really good parties. And, and that may fit into a part of this definition, but really what this text says is that you're a friend or a lover of strangers. That one sounds harder, doesn't it? When you see people you don't know, when you see people that you're uncomfortable around, those that may require more of you than you want to give, that you don't run away from relationship with them, but you lean in, you love them well, you invite them into your house, to your dinner table. 
that you help them go from stranger to friend to family, that you love them enough that that you would share the greatest news they could ever hear with them. You talk about another area where the Spirit of God's got to do a lot of work on me and a lot of work on us, right? It's far easier to get into our dorm room and shut the door to pull into our garage and put the garage door down quickly, to like retreat into the space that we're comfortable in with our friends and our family that we know. God is calling us to something much different, much greater than that. We're almost to the end of verse two. Let's keep going. Able to teach. This is one of them that feels a little more like skill-driven, a little less character-driven. But even in, in this text, in this phrase, what Paul's getting at, he's not, he's not saying you need to find the best public speaker you can find and they're qualified to be an elder. What he's saying here is they must have a depth of understanding of the scriptures that they can teach and show others those beautiful truths. It is far less about performance of a task and far more about understanding and a pursuit of understanding who God is. Christians, every Christian in the room, God expects and wants you to know your Bibles and to understand his character. The leaders of the Christians, he demands it from them, expects it from them. Look at the importance that Paul places on the teaching of the word. This is something that's critically important in the church. Over in Acts chapter 20, Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders, and look what he tells them. It'll sound a lot like chapter one that we had a couple weeks ago. Here's what he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. If you've ever questioned the value of the church, it is worth the blood of Jesus. Like that is how important it is to him. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Here's what they'll do. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. There will be people that will intentionally bring false teaching to lure the disciples away from what is good and true and towards the the false things that they're promoting but how will people know that it's false? We talked about this a few weeks ago. You'll know if it's false if you know it's true. And the job of the elders is to guard what's true, to teach it, to preach it, to promote it, to talk about it, to make sure the flock understands. The teaching of the truths of God to the gathered church on Sunday mornings. It is a critical role of the elders of the church. That's what we believe First Timothy teaches. Who can speak on a Sunday morning is not based on gender. Men can, women can't. No, we believe it is based on who is fulfilling the role of elder in the church. That's why at Saul Church, you will see Paul or myself Dan, one of our other elders, there's two guys in Cedar Falls who, from our sending church that continue to give elder oversight in a church. That's why they will be the ones that preach the message of the Bible. We've got a few other guys that are training to be elders in the church or the elders in the churches that they will plant. And so you'll see them preach the word of God on Sunday mornings. We see that as critical in the life of the church. 
We'll periodically have guests come in and preach. These guests are qualified elders in like-minded churches. And even in those moments, we're going to get their notes ahead of time. We're going to talk about it with them. We're going to make sure that what they are preaching from our stage is what we as an elder team believe is true. But as we mentioned even last week, we would be foolish if we just fully excluded the female voice from how we preach the Bible. That would be silly of us. We don't have a full understanding. And so we invite women from this church into our teaching process to help us see what we don't see, to make our teaching fuller than it would be on our own. And we are so grateful for those women. Keep going in this text. One of the next phrases in verse three, not an excessive drinker, This one's going to be a little sensitive, so heads up. Not an excessive drinker. Paul is not prohibiting drinking in this text, right? He's not saying, thou shalt never drink a drop of alcohol. But listen to me, church. I also want us to be very careful to never create a culture that actually promotes and encourages an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. I'm actually not worried that the majority of who is sitting in here on a Sunday morning is falling into the trap of believing wrongly that God says you should never drink a drop of alcohol. I'm not worried about that. What I'm far more worried about is that we would be a people who has let a relationship with alcohol that is unhealthy slip into our daily life and it becomes part of who we are. And Paul is saying that is not what a Christian should be and that sure shouldn't be a Christian leader. Don't get drunk. That is really clear from scripture. That is sin. That is beyond what God wants us to see alcohol and, and how, we should, how we should relate to alcohol. That is very clear. But there can be an unhealthy relationship with alcohol that actually doesn't result in drunkenness. Right? If you find yourself day after day after day after day after day as you finish your work day or your class day saying, I can't wait to get home and have a beer because I just need it to relax you may have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And you may need to ask God, God, would you convict me if this is true? And if you find yourself a little defensive to that and a little frustrated by that statement, it's simple. Here's what I tell you to do. Just don't drink for a while and see what happens. Do you find yourself longing for it, desiring it, thinking about it all the time, getting caught up in it? Marking a date on your calendar when you can have it again. That might reveal that you have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And God would call you to something very different than that. We'll keep going. Not a bully, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not greedy. Again, most of these are character qualities that God calls all Christians to be committed to. And elders will be selected based in part on their faithfulness to these. Here's a a few more that might specifically get into this role of eldering. This one is in verse four. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. I'll be honest, there are days in my house in which if you walked in, you might read this verse and wonder if this is true of me. It's, it's true. It can be a challenge to be a parent. Does this text mean that an elder's kids must be Christians? It can't mean that, right? Like, 
mothers and fathers can't make their kids be Christians, right? Like God has to do a work to redeem their souls for that to be true. But mothers and fathers are responsible for teaching the truths of God to their kids, living for them, both in their words and in their actions, what it means to be submitted to the leadership of Jesus and submitted to the authorities in their lives. Right? If your entire family is rebellious towards bosses and teachers and church leaders, and if kids will never obey and are rebellious, that would indicate that maybe that man shouldn't be an elder, that he may be disqualified. Down in verse 7, he must have a good reputation with outsiders. Here's what that looks like practically in our church. When we are talking with a man and going through like an elder process, we will actually reach out to their neighbors and to their bosses and just ask them a few questions about what they're like at work and in their neighborhood. Or we want to make sure the same person that walks through these doors on a Sunday morning where everything looks good and they're really nice to everybody and they're not greedy and they're not abusive in their leadership, we want to make sure that's the same on Tuesday, on the weekend, in their neighborhood. We believe that's important. Look through this list again. There's a lot of them, right? To be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy, he must manage his own household well. He must not be a new convert. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. Look at that list, and let me ask you this question. If you had church leaders that led and, and their character was like is described in 1 Timothy chapter 3, wouldn't you joyfully submit to their leadership? Like, if they were that type of person, wouldn't you say, sign me up, I will follow them wherever we're going? Like, I know I would. That is the type of leader when Paul sets forth, this is what it means to lead a church. This is what he believes God's expectations for them are. These are the kind of leaders that we aspire to be. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 13. We'll put this verse up on the screen. Hebrews 13, verse 17. This is actually speaking to people that are in the church. Here's the instruction. Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Submission and obedience sounds like a terrible idea when you have bad leaders. But when you have leaders like those described in chapter 3, submission is a joy. And if I could just take a moment and speak to you as is one of your elders, one of your leaders. I can tell you, I know what the writer of Hebrews is describing when he talks about the grief of leadership. Like, I don't know how much you guys think about what our staff and elders do not on Sundays. I know the common thought is, you know, you work one day a week on Sunday when people come to church. We actually do work quite a bit more than that. But one of the things that we do, one of the jobs that we have, and it is beautiful and it is difficult, is that we are walking through both good things and hard things with people all the time, day by day. And there are conversations and there are meetings where at the beginning of it, we are celebrating the incredible work that God is doing in the lives of his people. And in that same hour-long conversation, we are shedding tears of grief over the brokenness and the hurt. 
And there are times where the grief of leadership feels unbearable. Like there are days, I'll just, be, I'll just be honest with you, there are days where I think, man, it was a lot easier when I was an accountant. Maybe I should just go back to doing that. Like the burden of leadership of the church can be so heavy, and we as leaders and elders can be tricked into believing that it's too heavy of a burden for us to carry. And it's in those moments that we must be reminded of the beautiful gospel truth that it's not ours alone to carry. That's why God gives the church multiple elders. And ultimately, it's why the church is not led by a group of elders, but it's led ultimately by Jesus. He can carry that burden. He can bear that weight. Your elders, we do not sit in a place of authority looking down at our people saying, why can't you just raise the bar? Why can't you just live better? Why can't you just be more holy? We are not looking down at you with condemnation, but we are right there with you saying we are going to try hard to follow Jesus and we want to help you along if we can. Invite you on this journey of truly being faith-filled in the person and the work of Jesus, which can lead to each one of us being faithful to the commands of Jesus. Let's finish our text, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You'll notice in this description of the qualifications for deacons, it's practically the same list as the qualifications of elders. The one that's maybe different is that ability to teach. Again, that's why we guard the role of elder and the role of teaching so carefully, right? And the word that is translated as like the position of elder, we see this many times throughout the scriptures. Like we get a pretty clear picture as to what elders should do in the local church. But the word that describes the position of deacon, it actually only shows up like twice in the whole New Testament, we don't get as clear of a picture as to what exactly should deacons do. But the word that's like the root word of the word deacon, we see it a hundred times in the New Testament. And here's how it shows up. To serve. Serving. Leading the way in serving. Meeting the needs of people. To be a deacon in the New Testament church simply means you are a leader of the servants in the church. You lead the way in the way that you care for people, in the way that you love people, in the way that you serve people. We don't currently, as a church, have formal roles of deacon. We likely will someday as we continue to grow. But that doesn't mean that we aren't and shouldn't be a church filled with people that serve generously, often, with the intent of helping people to see the goodness of the gospel and the way the church relates to one another. We see elders, we see deacons, 
And there's a third group that's referred to in verse 11. Look at this one one more time. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. In the version that we're using, the CSB, in that verse 11, the word wives in other translations is, is translated women. And I actually think after reading a bunch of people who are way smarter than me on this text, I think they're right. Women is the better translation. We don't believe that Paul is talking to deacons' wives, which maybe is what it feels like initially. Why would he address deacons' wives but not elders' wives? That doesn't make sense. Here's what we think he's saying. We think he's saying that the role of deacon is not just reserved for men, but it's available for women as well, right? Where does verse 11 show up? Right in the middle of this whole passage about deacons, where he's giving these character qualities, he's giving these expectations, talking about how they should serve the church. And we believe men and women should do that together in any and all ways, right? You also don't have to look very far in the New Testament to see women doing this. It's one of the best proofs of what Jesus intended for women to do in the church. Because at the time, I don't know if you knew this, at the time, women were really told to just kind of stay off to the side and be quiet. Just stay out of the room when the men were doing the important things. Go and have babies and cook meals and just be off to the side. That was what women, that's how women were treated in this time. And Jesus came along in an incredibly countercultural way and said, no, I'm going to include you and use you and work through you. And so women are called to be deacons or deaconesses as well. So if you're in this room, and you are, like you're sitting in this room, if you're in this room and you would call yourself a Christian, which I, I think probably most of you would say that, we have just read 13 verses that place an incredibly high calling on the followers of God that he puts on them. Like when elsewhere in scripture, when, when God says, hey, be holy because I am holy, these are the things that he is talking about. This is what it looks like to be holy before a God who demands holiness. This is what it means to follow him. And Paul is simply saying, appoint leaders in the church who do this, who are faithful at this. But I'll be honest with you, as I read these verses and these expectations, I feel a little like hopeless a little, not a little, a lot inadequate. Right? When I read these expectations of a follower of Jesus and a leader in the church, I feel like, hey, there's, that's not me. I can't do that. And I'll be honest, I kind of hope you react the same way. See, because I believe that feeling of inadequacy is a first step in you recognizing your utter dependence on Jesus and the work of God in your life to make you anywhere like this. That you wouldn't, out of pride, read a list like this and say, easy, I got it. I can be a leader and I should be a leader. But that you would read a list like this one and out of humility say, Jesus, I need you to change me. Jesus, I need you to work in me. And you might ask the question, well, can he do that? Like you read a list like this and you might be thinking, I am so far the opposite of all of these things. Could Jesus even help a person like me? I truly believe he can. 
I truly believe he can because he was the perfect example of all of this. He was self-controlled, hospitable, gentle. He wasn't greedy. He was the perfect example of one who wasn't quarrelsome, but was sensible and above reproach. He wasn't hypocritical. He wasn't a drunkard. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And because that's true of him, I truly believe that he can do the work to make that true of you. If you and I would have hearts and minds filled with faith in the person of Jesus, not faith in yourself, but faith in the person of Jesus, that his work on the cross was good enough to save you and forgive you, that his work even now in your soul, that he is powerful enough to change you. If we have faith that Jesus can do that, I believe that he can do that and that he will. That he will change our affections, that he will redirect our priorities, and that he will give us the mission that he desires for us. Imagine a church where the leaders are committed shepherds, teaching the truth of God's word, guarding the flock, loving the sheep. Imagine a church with leaders who recognize that ultimately Jesus is the leader of his church. The church was purchased with whose blood? Not mine, with Christ's blood. This is his church. Imagine a church filled with leaders who believe that and understand that and live out of that. I believe that kind of church would create Christians who love being led, with joy can submit to the church leaders. They can trust in their character. I believe that kind of church would create people who are committed to be on mission together. And I believe that's the kind of church that God would use to make an incredible impact in Gainesville, Florida, and beyond. And that's the kind of church I hope we will be. It's the kind of church I hope we are. But we need God to do an incredible work for that to be true. But we believe he can. For some of you, though, in a couple years, you won't still be sitting here at Salt Church. right? You'll be moved on to your forever city with your new family and your new job and your new life. And, and you, I hope, will look backwards. We for sure will look backwards with fondness and joy in the memories that we had together, what God did while you were here in your time in Gainesville, Florida. But listen, we won't celebrate those stories the most. Here's what I can promise you we will celebrate. When we hear stories about you being the best small group leader that you can be in your local church, when you're joyfully sharing the gospel with your unbelieving neighbors, when you are the type of people that 1 Timothy 3 describes as leaders and pastors and elders and members, contributors to your local church, those are the things that we will celebrate with joy. Those are the things we can't, can't wait to see God do. Join me this morning in praying because church, this calling, these expectations they are high and they are difficult. But with God's spirit, in God's people, 
We believe he can make this true. So we're going to pray that he would do that. Pray with me.